Warming with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana, and today's episode will focus on robot swarms and multi-agent systems. One of the main challenges in controlling not just one, but a whole swarm of robots is coordination. Magnus Egerstedt, director of the Georgia Robotics and Intelligent Systems Laboratory, GRITS Lab, at the Georgia Institute of Technology, is working on solving this and other swarm-related challenges. Our interviewer, Andrew Vaziri, caught up with Magnus to talk about his latest research on swarm robotics and interfaces for single operator control, as well as privacy and security concerns in multi-agent systems. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hello. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm uh, Magnus Eggerstedt and I'm a swarm robotics professor from Georgia Tech. Could you briefly summarize the research topics that you focus on? So I'm really, really interested in how do you get large teams of robots to do interesting things together. And in particular, individual robots may not be all that talented, but the question is, how do they make decisions so that beautiful and effective and exciting global patterns and behaviors emerge? So is this limited to physical robots or are there other systems where these can be applied? So I'm mainly interested in, in robotics, but this question of distributed decision-making is, is really something that, you know, it could go from all the way from smart inverters on the smart grid to uh, computational units in video games to just, you know, biological systems. I mean, we're, we have cells and we have birds and we have even human societies. They're all distributed systems where we walk through life with uh, somewhat limited information, and yet we're able to build anthills and livers and human societies. Swarms of robots, distributed systems, these are very complicated things. Uh, How do you generally go about trying to model those? So I always start by pretending that I'm a somewhat stupid robot with very limited information and just asking, what what would I do? How would I think about this? And uh, after I've tried to do that, step two is... Almost always I look to nature because nature is filled with examples of elegant solutions to hard problems. Now, I'm not a biologist and I'm by no means trying to mimic nature, but I am, uh, I'm shamelessly stealing good ideas that uh, social behavioral biologists have had. And then when I'm done stealing from nature, uh, sit down, pen and paper, work out the math and then put it on the robots and see that it doesn't work because it never works when you go from math to robots. So then you have to uh, iterate around the actual robots uh, a few times as well. And when you're, when you're working with these robots, of course there are constraints that we don't have in nature in terms of the way that they're able to communicate with each other. Is it difficult to model that? What is the approach? So when you actually start deploying large teams of robots, there are some things that are just impossible to model, things that happen that you didn't foresee, right? So uh, the robots start bumping into each other. You start saturating the the communication channels. You start getting weird occlusions and the infrared sensors start messing with each other. So 
So there are always things you cannot model. And one of the, I think, greatest arts of swarm robotics is how do you go from rudimentary fables or models that are somewhat relevant to things that can actually be deployed on, on large systems. And, and this transition is, is a lot of times tricky, but it's also deeply satisfying. So being in, in swarm robotics is really exciting because during the last 10 or so years, we've gone from kind of a, a spotty anecdotal understanding of how to structure these things to, to large teams of robots on the ground, in water, in the air that can actually coordinate their actions and, and build interesting geometries. So certain things we now understand quite well that we didn't 10 years ago. So it's quite routine to see you know, 25 robots doing exciting things on YouTube. Uh, 10 years ago, this would have been unheard of. Uh, so the basic functionality of how do we build these geometries or get these global behaviors out, we've kind of understood both on a practical and on a mathematical level. Now, there are a huge number of issues that we don't understand. Like, let's say, for instance, that uh, one of the robots is not playing by the right rules, or let's say it's broken, you know, or even worse, it's malicious. How do we identify this? How do we not let our robots be duped by these bad robots? So there are a huge number of questions that we clearly don't understand yet, but we understand the basics of how to assemble these kinds of structures. I think that's very interesting that you mentioned uh, malicious actors potentially being in the system. I know that you recently published a paper about differential privacy in multi-agent systems. What is differential privacy? What is it good for? So the basic idea behind differential privacy is, let's say that you and I and some other robots are trying to do something, uh, but what we're doing individually is we're really having our own cost or utility function that we're trying to minimize. So I may like to be where it's light, and you would like to be positioned so that you're not too close to any flying robots because you're afraid of flying robots. So together, we have to live in the space together, but we have our own objectives. So differential privacy is a way of hiding certain information by basically sprinkling noise onto what we do. So for instance, I may kind of, and I move in a, in a little bit of a noisy way so that you can't really figure out what it is that I'm up to. Uh, we're still respecting each other's actions, but no one can infer what it is that I am trying to do. And the trick there is to, to insert the noise in a clever way so that we just don't end up doing erratic things. We're actually achieving roughly what we set out to do individually, but no one can tell what's going on. And, and this idea... Uh, of differential privacy actually came from the database literature where let's say we have a database of all our salaries. So if I add my salary to the database, if you know how many people are already in the database and you know how it changed, then you can actually back out my salary. But if I and all of us sprinkle in a little bit of clever noise, then certain things about the salaries, like what's the average salary and so forth, you can still get from the database, but you cannot back out any of the individual pieces of information. And it's the same idea in swarm robotics. You sprinkle noise on the motions to kind of hide your intentions. Uh, this is, in a way, a flip side from the malicious behavior where you want to be able to detect that here is a, a robot that somehow isn't playing by the, by the right rules. Uh, so they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. One is to hide your intentions, and the other is, well, you want to be able to figure out what, what bad robots are doing. Bad robot. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So I think a, a theme that I, we've, we've all seen in, in our local big box stores is that everything wants to be smart these days, smart grids, smart homes. Uh, is that something that we should maybe take with a grain of salt, given these concerns of, of being able to peer into these systems and learn something that we, maybe we shouldn't know? Partially, yes. I, I think one thing in general when we talk about technology is it's not going to be decoupled from us. And we are going to be users of technology. And we need to, in my mind, build our systems so that, first of all, it respects us as individuals who want to maintain our privacy, for instance, but, but also so that it's useful. Like people talk about self-driving cars. We're not going to wake up tomorrow and all of us be sitting in our self-driving cars. This is going to be sneaking up on us where we really get more and more autonomy in the car, but people are actually engaging with them. And uh, similarly, people are, in my mind, almost always going to be somewhere in the mix when it comes to distributed robotic systems, but also this, the distributed just gadgets, the Internet of Things, right? People are going to be on the Internet of Things together with the, with the things. So differential privacy could be one way to make the Internet of Things a little bit more private. Uh, but I understand you just mentioned self-driving cars. I, I know that you've also done research on uh, the other side of the coin uh, where there are malicious agents actively trying to change or affect what the system does. Um, now, it sounds like a plot device from a spy movie, but could you tell us a little bit about uh, controlling an enemy unmanned aerial vehicle by exploiting its own safety systems? How did that work? Sure. So we were really, really interested in this question of now when we're about to see aerial drone delivery systems, so Google and Amazon are in the not-too-distant future, if you believe the, the talk, going to be delivering things to us through the air, right? Uh, the question was then, is it possible to take over these systems and take over the systems in such a way that the systems themselves don't know that they're being taken over? So this is not a classic cybersecurity question. It's a cyber-physical security question because a lot of these systems, including our aerial drones that we were playing on, they have safeguards to here are reasonable physical behaviors. Basically, it's here is the stuff that is within reason and as long as we're within reason we're going to be fine so our question was can we hide the malicious intent inside the noise of what is considered reasonable behavior yet get the systems to ultimately do completely the wrong things and i don't want to say that we've completely demonstrated that this is the case but we've certainly demonstrated examples where it is possible to to hide uh, and trick the system into thinking that it's doing the right thing because what we're doing is we're camouflaging the, the malicious trajectories inside the, the reasonable and rational behavior. In this particular example, how did you inject that signal? What was the mechanism by which you influenced the aircraft? In my lab, we're not, we're not to be honest, we're not hackers, right? So, so we, since we designed the, the aircraft, we had a, an error system or a safety system that detected if something was wrong, and then we just wirelessly, over the Wi-Fi network, injected new sig signals. And, uh, you know, if someone is really, really clever, they could probably build something to, to detect that this is going on on the cybersecurity side. But that, that was not what we were interested in. We were interested to see is, is it possible to hide the malicious takeover within the cyber-physical security system? This is very similar to the idea behind Stuxnet, right? The where uh, these uh, 
nuclear centrifuges, um, control systems were made to believe that they were behaving right because not because someone hacked in, but because you made the signals look plausible to the security systems. Uh, we actually drew a lot of inspiration from, uh, this is kind of amusing, from uh, dragonflies. So dragonflies, for instance, will, will move in such a, let's say you're a dragonfly, you're a male dragonfly, and I'm another male dragonfly, and now we're going to fight. What I do is I move in such a way that I have the sun in a straight line behind me, so you can't actually tell really what I am, where I am. And then what I do is I go in while ma- making sure that no matter how you move, I'm going to move so that you just see the sun. And then, bam, I'm going to get you, right? And similarly, in control theory, there is uh, this notion of a, an unobservable subspace, which is here is things that the, the trajectory of the system can do that's hidden from the output. And we exploited this by basically restricting our motion to these unobservable modes of, of the system. So that's very interesting that this adds a whole other layer. It's, it's not just cyber warfare. It's not that you hacked and you changed the code that was running on the target. It's exactly intact as it was designed by its creator. But you've changed what it observes or what it thinks it observes. So that seems like a very hard thing in general to defend against, to, to not only take into account the cyber aspects, but also all the ways that things could physically interact. Is there a, a principled way to make sure that systems aren't vulnerable in this fashion? So, so we have been uh, looking into this question. And, and really, I'm going to say that at this, to this point, there isn't truly a principled way, but there are ways in which people have done it. So what we looked at, we looked at, we actually call them motion probes. Uh, basically, what it is is that the system every now and then does a little somewhat strange maneuver where it's basically a signature maneuver. You make a little sidestep where the quadcopter makes a, all of a sudden something that almost resembles a figure eight. And this is unexpected. And if the attacker isn't expecting it, then you can actually excite these previously unobservable modes and say, hey, something is actually not behaving the way it should there. So this is how we are thinking about it. And this also goes back to the, this question of detecting not malicious takeovers, but malicious agents. If you and I are swarm robots and we're supposed to do something, and if I make a little figure eight, I know what you're supposed to do in response to that if you're one of my people. And if you don't respond right, I can actually detect that, hey, something is at least fishier. So I'd I'd like to change gears a little bit and ask about something that's high risk, but in a different sense. I recall reading uh, maybe four years ago in... IEEE Control Systems Magazine, there was a little uh, blurb about you, and and you wrote about your research philosophy and your research style, that you like to keep a few high-risk, high-payoff topics on the horizon. So I just wanted to ask, what does that that mean, a high-risk, high-payoff topic? What does it look like to you? So the wonderful thing about being a professor is that you're largely free to explore things that you find interesting. Now, I have to pay the bills, and I have to more importantly, make sure that my graduate students get to eat. So I have to do things that are uh, five years out that people care about. But I also have the freedom to, uh, to think about things that I truly am interested in that, that are way out there, uh, that if they come to fruition, they're going to be important. But if they don't, uh, chances are they don't. Uh, it was no big deal. And I, I always like to have a few of these questions that I think are, are fundamentally important and interesting down the line 
on on the back burner. So every now and then I return to them. So right now I have a few. One thing that I'm really fascinated by is is this question of human swarm interaction. So let's say you're a person standing there with a joystick surrounded by a million robot mosquitoes and you want them to do something. How do you, what are the right ways to engage with truly large teams of things? That's one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm truly fascinated by right now. Uh, another thing that drives me absolutely nuts is people talk now about heterogeneity and heterogeneous multi-robot systems. What does that mean? It means different kinds of robots. So in my lab, we have things on the ground and things in the air, but, but fundamentally, why is it good to be different? Why should I have fast and slow robots together? What is it that fundamentally makes that better than just having a bunch of fast robots? And to me, this is, this is an interesting question because if I can answer that, or if we understand this, then we also understand what kind of robots we should deploy. If, if you have an earthquake and you want to send out some robots to figure out what's going on in the rubble, right? Um, you can say, hey, the optimal thing to do is to have nine snake robots, 15 aerial robots, and 24 ground robots, and here's what they should be doing. And I, to me, this is a fascinating question. And I look a lot at, again, nature, like ecosystems are highly diverse. Right? Why is that? How come hummingbirds live right next to sloths? Right? So is there something fundamentally good about that? I recall from... Uh... You know, some years ago, you mentioned that one of these high-risk areas was human-swarm interaction. How, how has it worked out over the past few years? Were there moments where it seemed dire? First of all, human-swarm interaction has now, a few years later, become a, an acceptable thing to spend your time on. And there are people, other people engaged in it. And uh, I think we've understood things. Like, if you have small teams of robots, then an effective way of engaging with them is actually to grab hold of a leader and inject information through the leader. Right? And that, that works well up to maybe four or five robots. Then that kind of collapses. Uh, and the reason for it is people get really, really bad at imagining what... Let's say that I'm a, I have 10 robots around me and I grab one and I shake it. Right? How does that propagate through the 10 robots? We just lose track. So, for instance... Uh, universities, militaries, companies, we're all hierarchically organized. And I think the reason is we don't know really how, what happens if we have 250 people that I have to manage at the same time. So then I looked at sheep herding, right, where you're not actually controlling individual sheep. You're kind of pushing things at the boundary with, uh, with herding dogs. And basically, instead of in the controlling individuals, you're exerting forces, on the outskirts of the, of the swarm. And, and it turns out that we can do some things quite well with that. I, uh, I've worked with uh, swarming tractors. So then the question is, you know, what, what does the farmer do at the sideline of the, of the field with an iPad? And there, you know, it turns out that maybe one way of engaging with the tractors is not to engage with the tractors at all, but engage with the map by saying, here are regions of interest. Now you tractors go figure it out. You did some research with a leader-follower system, and in, in that case, it was a haptic interface. Could you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so this goes back to this question of it's very unclear for people what it means to actually control large teams of things. So we, wanted, we needed some way of making this information concrete to a person. So what we did is we basically we computed something that we call the manipulability, which is a, a measure of how easy it is to move the swarm in particular directions. And this you could 
we could compute. And then we used that to generate forces. And the idea was if you tried to push the, the, the swarm in a direction in which it was hard to move it, then we you were experiencing large forces. And it turned out that this was, uh, this was fairly useful. We did user studies and people could solve tasks that were very hard to solve with just a joystick, but with a haptic joystick, they could solve the tasks much more effectively. Uh, and this goes back to the question of, you know, what information do you actually need about, about a large swarm? In this case, it was just a force. Uh, if you want them to do more elaborate things, you probably need more information. But if in general you just want to move the swarm from point A to point B, then we thought the findings in this study were, were that you know, haptic feedback actually serves a, uh, a rather, rather strong and good purpose. Could you paint us a picture of what the experimental setup looked like? What were the robots like? What was the user looking at? What were they holding? So the user were the user was just holding one of these. They're called Phantom Omni, but it's, it doesn't matter what brand it was. It's a, a haptic interface. It looks like a little pen connected to a ball, and if you're moving it up or to the side or in, you're experiencing a force depending on what feedback the, the little haptic force generating ball is giving you so that that was what the what the user was holding and then uh, the user was actually standing in the lab looking at in this case i believe the number was 10 so we had 10 robots and the robots were arranged in a particular formation and what the what the user could do is select which robot he or she wanted to use as the leader and then drag it in various directions so you can imagine if you have a long and skinny formation and the leader robot is embedded inside it in the middle. If you move along the direction of the long and skinny thing, then that's going to be hard because you have to move all these things out of the way and, and you're experiencing lots of forces. It has what's called low manipulability. If you move it away from the long and skinny direction, then it's easier to get it to kind of meld into a form or shape that follows the leader. So the, the user was, was looking at the robots, 10 robots. The user did not know how the robots were organized but basically tried to get them to go from one point to another point while navigating a little bit of an obstacle course. So no robots were allowed to actually get stuck behind an obstacle or something. So how did you assess uh, if it was being effective, if the person felt like it was a good interface or not? Yeah, this is always tricky when you do user studies, meaning how do you know if it's good or not? And uh, we used three metrics. So one is we just timed them. And so how long does it take? Uh, then we, uh, we looked at how much did the user have to, objectively speaking, work by actually measuring the... We summed up the, the control signals that were sent to the swarm. Um, and then the third thing is we asked them, so basically, did you find this annoying or not? Uh, there are more scientific ways of asking that question, but that's basically how it boils, what it boils down to. What level of stress or engagement or discomfort did you feel when you were doing this? A more advanced interface might be uh, something you alluded to, the farmer by the field with a tablet uh, and algorithms that were suited to that. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the, the backdrop to this is rather interesting, that, that tractors now are actually really advanced pieces of machinery. And they can largely drive themselves. So you, you put in the GPS of the, the path, and then they can more or less do this by themselves. And moreover, cornfields are really not that complicated. They're nice and straight. So 
So in terms of the types of environments you're encountering, they're not that complicated. The manufacturing floor is way more complicated. So, or my daughter's bedroom, way more complicated. Uh, but the farm field is not that complicated. So this uh, tractor manufacturer came to me and said, you know what? We know how to now make these uh, autonomous, which also means that we really don't need a driver in the tractor, which means that we can make the tractors smaller. And that's good because it has much less environmental impact. You don't have to go back and retail afterwards. So there are all, all, reasons, all good reasons why small is better, except that it's less, less effective, right? So now instead of having one small tractor, let's have 10 small tractors. But then the question is, but how do you actually engage with these? So they literally came and asked, what should the farmer do? We want to give the farmer an iPad. What should the farmer do? And that, that was the thing that we, were, uh, we got rather excited about. And, and what did you end up making? What algorithm and what kind of user interface or display? So we ended up going with something that uh, I believe is fundamentally a good idea, which is the farmer should actually not deal with the tractors. What the farmer should deal with is higher level tasks. And in this case, uh, what we had is we had a map of the world and the farmer could basically outline things that were interesting or things that were urgent or where there were lots of moisture or not lots of moisture, things that basically described, we used what we call density functions to describe areas of interest. And then the robots, they ran what's called a dynamic coverage algorithm, which basically means, okay, let's uh, disperse ourselves in such a way that we cover areas of interest in such a way that we get the same amount of interesting stuff we're in charge of. Technically, this is called a Voronoi partition. So the robots computed a Voronoi partition. And then inside that partition, they did their driving around. And then what the farmer could do is basically move the finger around. And on the fly, dynamically, the robots reconfigure themselves. Uh, so we took this, and this is now, uh, has nothing to do with tractors anymore, but we have this general way of, of painting event densities or areas of interest and then have the robots dynamically respond to that in a, in a distributed manner. Have you received any, any feedback from either farmers or researchers about some of these advancements? So I have. The number one uh, feedback I got was I did a photo shoot where I was wearing a uh, weird baseball cap and uh, rubber boots in the lab, and people <laughs> made fun of me because I pretended to be a robot farmer. Uh, but more, more seriously, I mean, pe- people are excited about it. I, I, uh, the interesting thing about swarm robotics is that it, it's... It's coming, and these kinds of environmental surveillance tasks, maybe farming or being out just trying to figure out what's going on in an area. I had a NASA project where we were uh, monitoring effects of gl- uh, climate change down in Antarctica. We actually never ended up going to Antarctica, unfortunately. But, but there, you deploy robots for fairly long periods of time, and they have to just respond to what's going on in the environment. And there, this kind of way of Painting the world at the user level with areas of interest is a very natural thing. Now, if you're flying two drones, that's not how to do it. Then you need to actually worry about the individual aircraft. But if you're just kind of interested in covering areas, then, uh, then this is a really effective way of doing it. And uh, we've had quite a lot of uh, funding from the Air Force Office of Scientific Research to, to pursue this further because, in a way, it's a very simple way of describing missions that robots can immediately execute. In closing, I just wanted to ask you uh, one 
kind of philosophical question. Uh, would it be fair to say that you're a fan of soccer? Ha! Yes, it would be uh, fair to say that I'm a fan of soccer. In fact, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to go put on my soccer gear and go play a uh, soccer game for old men. You have to be over 40 to play in the league. So, yes. <laughs> so you must be aware of uh, RoboCup's Robotic Soccer League. And currently they're pitting teams of robots against each other. But their goal is to field a team of robots that beat the World Cup championship human team by 2050. So I, th I think that shows a high level of optimism in the future of multi-agent teams and in swarm robotics, perhaps, as well. What do you see the future as? How will we get there? So robots are already better than people at many things. So we're really good. So robots are really good at not getting bored. They're really good at responding quickly to things. They're really good at crunching big numbers. So uh, I think if you do a robotic... 100-meter dash. We're not far away from having bipedal robots that's, that are faster than Usain Bolt, the fastest runner in the world. Right? Uh, as a soccer player, I mean, if you look at the artistry of, uh, of Messi, right, we're way, way far away from that. And I think part of that is actually not an algorithmic question. It's a... Where we're lagging right now a lot of times is is the actuation and the power supplies, right? So, so the humanoids of today that are not tethered, they have to schlep very large battery packs with them. And you have, you know, if you're lucky, uh, three degrees of freedom foot. Messi's foot have many more degrees of freedom. And he's small and agile. Perhaps the, the World Cup is uh, Mechatronics Challenge, but what to you would be the Swarm Robotics uh, coming-of-age moment where you say, that's the goal? That's actually a really good question. So what I think is, to me, what, a, a big part of what's driving me is pure intellectual curiosity. So I think there are deep scientific questions about how do you get truly emergent behaviors out from simple local rules. And What do you mean by an emergent behavior? Like a simple emergent behavior is how do you send out robots to cover an area where all they're doing is seeing very locally what's going on. A more higher level question is you have these little neurons and all they're doing is sending spike trains around and all of a sudden you have conscious human beings, right? So that's a very high level emergent behavior question. But, but once we understand that, to me, that's a really, really interesting question. And, and that has repercussions way beyond robotics. So to me, the, the, the big question is not how do I get 200 robots to mow my lawn more effectively, even though I think we're going to have robotic Teams of robotic lawnmowers, small little guys that are more agile than these big robotic lawnmowers that are out there now, but scientifically understand how we make these distributed decisions. Now, along the way, we're going to get rid of, we're going to have, we're going to have robots on Mars, more than one. We're going to have swarms of robots on Mars. We're going to have robot helpers in hospitals and on the manufacturing floor. These things are indeed coming, but, but I think ultimately, just like computers are really useful tools, they're only useful in as much as we do useful things with them. And, and I think people tend to think of ro robots as, oh my God, we're going to have an army of Terminators. Right? And I hope not. I hope we're going to use robots to make our lives better and to get energy and food and to remote locations of the globe. And I hope that we as people will be able to, to use them as tools for good 
as opposed to tools for evil, like a, an <laughs> army of Terminators, right? A fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining us. You bet. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today. As always, you can find more information about today's episode and all our past episodes on robohub.org, where you'll also find lots more content on robotics. And as we're now in December, it's time for our annual video and audio Christmas competition. So get on the website to find out more and to submit your entry. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Swarming with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.